On today's episode, Ashley shares the story of Maitrese Richardson, a woman whose tragic and mysterious death points to police corruption, cover-ups, and a total lack of basic human decency. Welcome to Crime Bar. morning good morning Hello. morning roomy roomy i mean i guess i said good morning to you down in the kitchen but but this was with more enthusiasm so no, nobody else heard it so it wasn't real it didn't count <laughs> i'm excited about this week you texted me at like 1 a.m and you're like i am riled up yeah i i stayed up until like one finishing the story and it, i was so agitated and so passionate about it that i was like if you were awake I would have been like, let's just record this right now because I could not sleep. And then, of course, I got like four hours of sleep, and now I'm now you're just kind of <laughs> a little bit tired. Like, uh huh. I am very anxious to hear what topic has inspired this um, this passion in you. Okay, so I didn't want to tell you any details because it's like a really shocking story. Like every other sentence, you're just like, what the fuck? Yeah, a lot of layers. So, yeah. Um, so this is the story of Maitrese Richardson. I know nothing. Not Nothing? Nothing. Literally nothing. Oh, <laughs> In general <laughs> and about this. Okay. That's even better. Um, so the majority of my info for this story was from a super thorough article written by Mike Kessler for Los Angeles Magazine. So shout out to him. Um, in fact, I mention his name so often, like every couple sentences that... He's a key player. If anyone wants to make a drinking game out of it, I uh, wish you the best of luck. No, that's actually stupid. Don't do that. Don't make a drinking game out of it? No, but you'll be like wasted by the end yeah. of the story. It's like when uh, when you watch Shark Week and they say every time the, oh, yeah. the world's most dangerous predator, you're supposed to take a shot. You'll be wasted. You'll be wasted. Yeah. Obviously, I used other sources and that's all going to be posted on the website, but it was really mostly just Mike's article. Thanks, Mike. So Maitrese Richardson was born on April 30th, 1985. So she's a Taurus, just like you. Yes. Uh, Maitrese was raised in Los Angeles, and although she lived primarily with her mom, Latisse, and her stepdad, Larry, she still had a really good relationship with her dad, Michael. She was a really bright and fiery girl who was just like so full of personality. And she was also really intelligent and really kind. In Mike Kessler's article, he says, Maitrese's mom, Latisse, loved to watch this old clip of her daughter's kindergarten graduation that shows her per personality from a young age. Maitrese is called on stage to accept her cer certificate, but when she turns to face the auditorium, she launches into a running man dance that slays the crowd. Oh my God. And she's such like, a Taurus. <laughs> yeah, such a Taurus. He's a little kindergartner. He says, quote, Maitrese was a clown, a ham, a princess, a brat, and most of all, a dancer. She wiggled in her crib to Prince's kiss before she could walk. No one could ignore this child, which I totally, I thought of you. <laughs> I, my mom and I used to sing, uh, sing uh, Prince's kiss really? to each other all the time. Oh, it's like yeah. a Taurus thing. Kiss. Uh, <laughs> Maitrese did the standing splits for no reason, and she gave big, exaggerated air kisses. Jolanda Davis, a classmate of Maitrese's growing up, said, quote, we'd be waiting for our parents to pick us up and Maitrese would break into some silly dance or make up a rap about whatever you were talking about. She was uninhibited and funny, but at the same time, her parents' background really drove her ambition. And so her parents had her in high school and they really struggled to make ends meet like most teen parents do. Mm -hmm. Latisse, uh, Maitrese's mom, was primarily raised by her grandmother, Mildred, so then after Maitrese was born, Latisse and Michael relied heavily on Mildred to help raise their daughter while they just tried to make ends meet with a yeah. little baby. Latisse and Michael didn't stay together and she ended up marrying someone else, but they all worked really hard to give Maitrese an education and a running start in life. Latisse told Mike Kessler, I always taught her to do it right the first time so you don't have to do it a second time and that'll free you up to do more of the things you want to do. 
I like loved that so much. That That was like such a great thing to teach your kids. And me, I was just taught that now. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) And now I will do that. Yeah. My Trace worked really hard to get good grades and it paid off. She was the first person in her family to attend college. Incredible. Yeah. She was accepted to Cal State Fullerton and in 2008 graduated with honors and a degree in psychology. And she had plans to become a psychologist. And around the time of her graduation, she came out to her friends and family as a lesbian. She was really proud and really confident, and she started dating a girl named Tessa Moon. The couple did things like march in the Long Beach Pride Parade together, and they just seemed awesome. like really happy. Yeah. Matrice even started working for Tessa's dad at his shipping company. But then in early 2009, Matrice and Tessa broke up. Almost immediately, Matrice started picking up extra work as a dancer at a popular lesbian bar in Long Beach called Debra's. And she used the name Hazel as a stage name and even had like business cards printed. Okay. She did it right then. <laughs> she was <laughs> committed. Do it. do it right the first time. That's where she met a girl named Vanessa that she seemed to fall pretty hard for. But it's a, like a little bit confusing because it sounds like my Trace was really interested in Vanessa, but Vanessa had a girlfriend and wasn't very interested in my Trace. Okay. Unrequited love. Yeah. But my Trace still kind of pursued her and apparently it was after my trace drove by herself to las vegas to join vanessa's birthday celebrations that vanessa finally put her foot down and was like no more this isn't gonna happen you have to leave me alone so i'm assuming that means that my trace maybe wasn't invited that's what it sounds like so this thing happens with vanessa that i guess seemed out of character for my trace to be like so persistent and yeah. someone that May not be interested. A little obsessive. Um, But it's hard to know if she was like being let on or if my Trace just wasn't taking the hint. But it's after she comes back from this Vegas trip that my Trace's mom and her friends start noticing very erratic behavior from her. She's posting like bizarre, hard to follow things on her MySpace at all hours and starts saying very strange things to her mom. Mike Kessler noted a specific exchange between Latisse and my Trace that went like this. In the days leading up to her disappearance, Maitree sent her mother a number of alarming, semi-decipherable text messages. You have to tell me what's going on with you, Latisse texted back. You've been somewhat elusive and philosophical. Tell me what's up. Have you found yourself in a state of sadness? Are you crying without reason or understanding? I'm concerned. Help me understand what's going on with you. Are you feeling lost, helpless, alone, rejected? What a good mom. I know. And Maitree replied... I'm writing a book, my journal, because you told me I can be anything I wanted. You told me I was Miss America. You told me I was America's next top model. Now do you know what I want to be when I grow up? Miss Mother Nature, because Miss America is a fake-ass joke along with everyone else we, quote, see. So I'm trying to find my way to Michelle Obama to see if she will talk to Mr. Obama about creating my position within the White House. Is she schizophrenic? No. No? Okay. Call me, her mother urged. I feel joy, mommy, my trace wrote. Not everyone has to die to live. I heard in the Bible, Jesus dies so we can live forever. Now I have to prove the unlogic. And this whole exchange um, happened like literally just a few days before her disappearance. So comes the day that this story sort of begins. On Wednesday, September 16th, 2009, which is my birthday. Yes, I was like, can we tell the people? <laughs> it's my birthday, but that's not relevant at all. Just a fun fact. It's not about so Ashley right focus. Now, No, it's not about bit. me, right, you guys. It's not about me. <laughs> Stop. Um, my tree sent her mom a few more nonsensical text messages, but Latisse was still asleep when they came through, so they didn't actually, like, interact. Apparently, my trace went to work at the shipping company like normal, and her coworker said that she was in an unusually bubbly mood, which I, I don't know, that didn't, Everyone described her as really bubbly, so that didn't make sense. Yeah, so if she's already bubbly, to be then described as unusually bubbly, bouncing off the walls. Yeah, I don't know what that means. But when she left for her lunch break, that was the last time her coworkers saw or heard from her. She didn't return, and that was very much unlike her. In the late afternoon, my trace stopped at her great grandmother Mildred's, but when she left, she didn't say where she was going. And then later that evening, Mitrice's aunt came outside her home in Inglewood to find Mitrice's hazel business cards 
plastered all over her car windshield, but no sign of my trees and no indication as to when she had been there. So while her coworkers and family don't know where she is at this time, and they don't, they also have no reason to like worry. We know that she probably drove from her aunt's home in Inglewood directly to Malibu. Okay. But why she was going up there is unclear. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Malibu is a pretty significant drive from Inglewood. Like that drive would take 40 minutes on a day with no traffic, but it seems like she was driving there during rush hour. So I'm sure it took much longer. And I'm only specifying that so that everybody understands she was going way out of her way. Like you don't, you don't go from any inland area of Los Angeles to suddenly like stumbling into Malibu. Like they don't have it upon it. No. And then obviously driving up and down PCH is gorgeous and many people cruise the highway at sunset. So if that's what she was doing, it's certainly not weird. It's just that nobody knows what was drawing my trace in this direction. She wound up stopping at a restaurant called Joffrey's and it's pretty deep in Malibu. Oh, do you know? Yeah, I've driven by it multiple times. I've always wanted to go. Oh, I, um, I I don't think I go like beyond the country mart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I, I don't, I haven't actually seen it. Um, it's sort of near Point Doom, so it's... I always have shoots at Point Doom, like oh. in that area. Oh, so. okay. So you know where it is. I do. Uh, her family later said that Maitrice didn't have any reason to be there, and she was very unfamiliar with the area and had never been to that restaurant before. So she pulls into the parking lot, and the valet sees her waiting. But when he finally makes his way to her car, she's not there anymore. He looks around and realizes... She left her car and got into the driver's seat of his car. So the valet asked her why she was in his car. And she said, it's subliminal and said something about her being there to avenge Michael Jackson's death. Okay. So she hands over her keys. He's like, in that case. Yeah. Oh, oh, (laughs) oh, why didn't you say? Oh, yeah, yeah. So. She hands over her keys and started walking towards the restaurant, but then turned back and asked Vanessa here. And obviously, like, he has no clue if she's meeting someone and if whether or not that person has shown up. So Maitrice tells him to keep an eye out for a girl with tattooed arms. And then she goes into the restaurant. The valet warned the host that the customer seemed a little off. Nothing too alarming, but like, keep an eye on her. (laughs) And maybe that was innocent. But when I read that, I just like rolled my eyes because Maitrice is black. Yeah. And Malibu is white, 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 white. So I was just like, yeah, okay, valet dude, like but she, real subtle telling the restaurants to keep an eye on the black girl. But I know what you're about to say. She's trying to avenge Michael she, Jackson's death. I know. And she yeah. got into his car. So I maybe I shouldn't accuse him of racism, but no. it's just like, that was my first thought. I would also I be know. keeping an eye on her regardless of what she looks like. Yes. So Maitrice gets seated and orders a cocktail and a steak. But while she's waiting, she gets up and walks over to a loud table of seven nearby and joins them. She sits at their table and starts saying some nonsensical things and talking about astrological signs. She should have sat at our table. We would have welcomed her. Oh, yeah. She would have been our friend for sure. Absolutely. The waiter came to the table and asked if everything was okay because he had seen that Maitrice had randomly joined their table. But the group of people just sort of laughed it off and didn't have a problem with her being there. Eventually, when Maitrice's food arrives, she goes back to her table to eat. But once she finishes, she goes back to join the table of seven again. And when those diners are ready to leave, Maitrice stands up and tells them she's going to Hawaii and she will contact them when she arrives. So they leave and she goes back to her table and gathers her stuff to leave as well. But the manager stopped her before she got to the door and informed her she still needed to pay her $89 tab. She seemed confused and told him that the table of seven she'd been with should have covered it for her. And when he told her that they hadn't paid her bill, she said, quote, I'm busted. What are we going to do? But then as the manager was talking to her, she acted like she was in a trance, like she wasn't really listening. She told him that she was from Mars and made a remark about settling her debt with sex. She then emptied her pockets to prove that she didn't have any cash in her and a joint fell out. So an employee decides, I guess after seeing the joint like a fucking narc, to call the Lost Hills Sheriff Station and said, quote, we have a guest here who was refusing to pay her bill. She sounds really crazy. She may be on drugs or something. 
So while they're waiting, Maitrese told an employee that while she was at work earlier, she watched a soap opera and God informed her that she needed to take the rest of the day off of work. She also told her that she didn't have any parents, just her great-grandmother Mildred. And then she actually gives the employee Mildred's phone number and they call to inform her what's happening. Mildred is 90 years old. Yeah. And it's like 9 p.m. Um, she can't really do anything except offer to pay the tab over the phone with her credit card. But the restaurant won't accept that because they required the cardholder signature. And then Mildred is actually still on the phone when three Lost Hills deputies arrive. Their names are Frank Brower, Armando Lorero, and John McKay. One of them gets on the phone with Mildred and then hands the phone over to Maitrese. She says to Maitrese, you put that phone close to your ear. They're getting ready to take your black ass to jail. And this is the last interaction she has with Maitrese. Oh, no. The police search Maitrese's car and claim that they didn't find a wallet, money, or a phone. They did find her driver's license, um, some scraps of weed, and some half-empty bottles of booze. So this detail I'm about to give you is really important. Okay. The arresting officer, Lorero, allegedly told the other deputies that Maitrese was, quote, making odd statements and said that she was possibly drunk. Because he said that, they did a field sobriety test, but Maitrese passed. She was sober. Completely sober. Now, why that's important, um, I'll tell you later. Just keep it at that little detail in mind. Okay. They asked her why she was there at Joffrey's, and she told them she was, quote, drawn by the lights. They asked if she was on any medication or had ever been placed on a 72-hour psych hold, and she said no to both. Some of the employees suggested paying Maitrese's bill themselves so that she could just leave, but ultimately they felt like she wasn't safe to be on her own and driving. She had been acting so erratically and saying such bizarre stuff, and the manager of the restaurant felt like the only safe way to remove her was to press charges. In the LA Magazine article, Mike Kessler said that the manager is, quote, too shaken to say much about my trace these days. Too much guilt, too many death threats, and blogosphere comments like, Joffrey's kills black women. But he told a local reporter named Julie Ellerton that handing my trees to sheriff's deputies was almost like a blessing to my heart at that point. Like, okay, good. This is all going the way that it should. And I know that hindsight is twenty twenty, but what the fuck? What the, I Like, know. I mean, seriously, my trees was experiencing an obvious mental health crisis. She wasn't acting dangerous. And I get that it looked like maybe she had been intending to dine and dash, but that clearly didn't end up being the reality. And nobody would have expected what ended up happening to happen. So I don't want to judge the manager too harshly. For all we know, he lives with immense guilt. But at the same time, like pressing charges seems it's like the such way an extreme decision. So Maitrese was arrested for attempting to skip out on her bill in possession of marijuana. Her car was impounded and taken to a lot in Malibu, not far from the restaurant. So while they're making a 25-minute drive to the station in Agora Hills... Mildred had called Maitrese's mom, Latisse, to let her know what was going on. So Latisse called the Lost Hills station and asked if Maitrese would be released that night or would she be held overnight. Latisse lived far away and she had a 10-year-old daughter who was asleep. I think by this point, it's, it's like 11 p.m. It's, 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 fairly, it's fairly late. So she didn't want to like wake her and make her go on this long drive in the middle of the, of the night if uh, the sheriff's just like intended to hold Maitrese till the morning anyways. So the deputy at the station reassured Latisse that they would be holding her overnight and she would be safe there. Latisse said to the deputy, quote, I think the only way I will come and get her tonight is if you guys are going to release her tonight. She definitely, she's not from that area. And I would hate to wake up to a morning report. Girl lost somewhere with her head chopped off. She, the mom said this? Mm -hmm. It's on a recording. So remember that remark that I made earlier about, um, Yes. The reason she got the sobriety test and why it was so important. Armando Lorero, the arresting deputy, specified at the restaurant to the other deputies that Maitrese was making, quote, odd statements and might be drunk. So Mike Kessler wrote, quote, if a law enforcement officer determines that an arrestee is mentally unstable, he's allowed to detain the person as a possible 5150 the official code for an individual who poses a danger to oneself or others. 
In such a scenario, the officer will either put the arrestee on a watch commander hold for greater scrutiny, or if necessary, send him or her to a facility for 72-hour psychological evaluation. Both instances call for extra time and paperwork or even a trip to the hospital. The arresting deputy, Lorero, didn't mention any unusual behavior or odd statements in the arrest report. Maitrice was simply charged with defrauding an innkeeper in possession of marijuana. And since her record was clean, keeping her locked up could have been a violation of policy. Maitrice was told she could make phone calls, but the only number she had memorized was her great-grandmother Mildred's. So, I mean, I'm literally still reading from his article, but then I'm about to read like a much bigger thing directly from it. Logbooks show that she called or tried to call Mildred four times following her arrest. The LASD has said that she was overheard having a conversation, but Mildred insists her phone never rang. Because the payphone, which records outgoing calls, was broken, the calls were made from a non-recording line, which is like really convenient. Yeah, very sketchy. For all anyone knows, Maitrice was blathering to a dial tone. Figuring Maitrice would sleep through the night, Latisse waited until 5.35 the next morning to phone the station. She reached the jailer, Sharon Cummings, who informed her that Maitrice was no longer there. Cummings knew that Maitrice's car was in the impound yard and that nobody was coming to pick her up. She also knew that Maitrice had no personal items besides her license and two keys that were in her pocket. Cummings has maintained that Maitrice declined an offer to stay in the lobby and said she was going to meet friends. The jailer released Maitrice at 12.15 a.m. on a Thursday, 40 miles from home with no cell phone, no money, and no transportation. The closest open businesses are a mile away, out of view from the station, with nothing in between except empty sidewalks and commercial buildings that shut down at night. A moment after talking to the jailer, Latisse called the station again and spoke with Deputy Kenneth Baumgardner. How long before a missing persons report can be filed? She can be heard asking on the recording. Is it 24 or 48 hours? Well, it depends on the circumstances, Baumgardner replied. Normally, I wouldn't recommend doing one that soon. Baumgardner didn't know about Maitrice's arrest or release, so Latisse filled him in. And again, she inquired about the time frame for filing a missing persons report. You know, I guess probably 24 hours would be reasonable, Baumgardner told her. I mean, if there would be some mitigating factors, you know, where you would suspect maybe something's not quite right. And Latisse began crying. Well, yeah, she doesn't know the area. She's never been in your area before. I would probably wait till, you know, like early this morning. And if she doesn't turn up, you can certainly call, Baumgardner advised. Sobbing, Latisse told him that she believed her daughter to be highly depressed and in a depressive state. Baumgardner tried to soothe Latisse and suggested, why don't you wait a couple hours and give us some time to make sure Maitrice wasn't asleep in the lobby? And then why don't you give us a call back in a couple of hours? And if she hasn't shown up or made contact with you, then maybe we can do something for you. They haven't checked the lobby already. You know what I, I mean? Know. It's like... I know. An hour later at 6.30 a.m., Lost Hills received a call from Bill Smith, a retired KTLA reporter who lives in Montenito, the bucolic community of horse properties and private hiking trails that lies about six miles west of the station at the bottom of Dark Canyon. We had a prowler walking around through the backyard here, but we don't know what the situation was, Smith told the dispatcher. He described the trespasser as a slim black woman with Afro hair. Smith recounted how he'd opened his window and asked the woman if she was okay. She said, I'm just resting, he explained. When Smith went to another window to get a clearer glimpse of her, the woman was gone. So Lost Hill sent a cruiser to the house, but they weren't able to find anyone. And deputies didn't issue a be on the lookout alert for another six and a half hours, by which time it was too late. My trees yeah. had, was, had vanished. Long gone. So I just have to say for anyone unfamiliar with this area, the idea of being led out into these mountains in the middle of the night is terrifying. Horrifying. Even during the day is terrifying. I used to commute back and forth from Malibu to Calabasas. So I was driving through this mountainous range every day for work, literally through this exact area that she yeah. was lost in. And even though I often went home after dark, it never felt spooky or isolated to me. But then I started doing research for the story and I have never felt so vulnerable. 
And I felt vulnerable like that sitting safely locked inside my moving vehicle. So I can't even begin to imagine how terrifying it was for my trace that night. In fact, one time I was driving through that area on my way to work and one of the main populated roads was shut down unexpectedly. So my GPS rerouted me. It took me to the very tippy top of the mountains in Malibu and I was terrified the entire time. This was like 11 a.m., super gorgeous sunny day, but the isolation was unlike anything that I had ever experienced before. I had no cell service, so eventually my Maps app stopped working and I had to just figure out how to get back down to PCH. Yeah. And nobody knew I had been rerouted into the fucking woods because yeah. I had no service and I couldn't call anybody. And the road that it sent me down was incredibly narrow and eventually turned into a one lane road with huge open drop-offs to one side oh and these tree branches that were like so low, they scraped against the windshield. So I had to drive super slow. And I, I mean, I know I was scared, so I was probably getting my head a little bit. Like I was, I felt very isolated. I'm yeah. scared of heights. I'm driving against cliffs that I could easily drive off of and I was super disoriented and lost in like this wilderness I didn't even know existed in LA anyways yeah. so I'm white knuckling it out of fear I'm gonna die on a hairpin turn or drive off one of the many exposed cliffs and then I start thinking what if I get a flat tire I was just about to say or if my car breaks down yeah. or whatever and the isolation is terrifying yeah and then I started passing homeless men and I, I'm not trying to say anything about homeless people. I'm not saying no. trying to say anything bad, but men but, in general, but the, just men in just general. Men. <laughs> but the guys I passed were scary. Yeah, and they clearly lived in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And you know, I had no choice but to very slowly drive past them. And each one I passed would stand there and stare me down, close enough to touch my car. Oh my god, this is like hills have eyes. That's what it felt like. And none of these guys were together. I was seeing them every couple miles. Wow. So the realization that I had just been terrified thinking I was alone up there wasn't nearly as terrifying as it was to realize I was very much not alone up there. Yes. And I didn't even know about my Trace Richardson at this point. And I'm so thankful for that because had I had her story in my mind, I would have had such a hard time keeping focus. Mm -hmm. And then boom, I'm like out of the woods, literally. Yeah plopped out onto PCH. I'm driving past this bougie Nobu and almost immediately a Rolls Royce almost sideswipes me. And so it's like a different world for anyone that like just doesn't know this area. Like I hope that that little experience sort of self sort of helps you understand the juxtaposition of wealthy white beachy Malibu and how the mountains above it are truly isolated wilderness. So back to my trees. Two days after she was seen in Bill Smith's yard, LASD conducted its first search. They chose to start their search from Bill's yard to determine if they could find any footprints or clues as to what direction she went in. They actually found sneaker prints belonging to Maitrese outside of Bill's house and they believed she'd been running and they managed to follow her trail but they lost the trail when her prints seemed to stop at the entrance to a place called Dark Creek, which is, um, it's just a dry creek bed that runs through the Dark Canyon area. And so for some reason, the deputies did not attempt to hike further to see if they could find any more prints, which baffles me. Yeah. They literally found her footprints, and when they clearly entered an area that required more of an extensive hike, they were like, well, I think that's all we'll find here. Yeah, seriously. Not worth the effort. This piece of info about them stopping their search right at the Dark Creek area is another one of those, like, keep it in mind for later, and I'll tell you yes. why, but it's very important. Mike Kessler wrote, because Maitrese was an L.A. resident, the investigation became the responsibility of the LAPD's missing persons unit, although the sheriff's department remained heavily involved. Three days into the search, the case was reassigned again to the LAPD's robbery homicide division because... Officials explained that that office had better resources. It was not, they assured everyone, a homicide investigation. When the LAPD got a hold of journals from Maitrese's Civic, they concluded that she'd been sleep deprived for several days and could have been suffering a bipolar episode the night of her arrest. 
Police also found her ATM card, checkbook, and cell phone in her car. After they had just said that nothing was in there. Yeah, and the, that, so that the LAPD found that. It's the sheriff's department that claimed that they didn't find any of that in her car. Okay. Maitrice's parents, her family, her friends, and even members of the public immediately started handing out missing persons flyers, and they did everything that they could to get the word out that there was this missing person. The arresting deputy, Armando Larrero, who supposedly told the other deputy that Maitrice was, quote, making odd statements, which was the statement that triggered the sobriety test in the first place, he later stated that he has no memory of ever saying that or instructing the other deputy to conduct a sobriety test, and he recalls Maitrice being of sound mind. Convenient. Yeah. Eight days after Maitrice's disappearance, the Lost Hills Sheriff's Station issued an addendum to the sobriety test, which reiterated that Maitrice was, quote, appeared to be entirely aware of her surroundings and did not seem confused. Three weeks later, in October... Sheriff's Department spokesperson Steve Whitmore declared to the public that Maitrice, quote, exhibited no signs of mental incapacitation whatsoever, which is fucking bullshit. Everyone had a complete opposite experience with this woman. Yeah. And another big point of bullshit. Yes. Maitrice's family requested to view video footage from Maitrice's jail cell the night of her arrest. Oh, no. And they were told no such video existed. So conveniently, the phone recording isn't working. Surveillance footage isn't working. But then on January 6, 2010, this is four months after Maitrice went missing. Her mom and some of her other family members are meeting with LASD's Captain Martin and Sheriff Lee Baca. When Captain Martin is like, oh, by the way, we do have that video and it's been in my desk drawer this whole time. I wouldn't have trusted any of it. Oh, but then after this... It's three more months until her family is allowed to view the video. And when Latisse finally sees it, she says it was edited. I was, I was about to say a lot of time for editing. Yeah. And the LASD claims the delay was due to technical difficulties. but Not for, not for that many months. This isn't no. the 1950s. No, this was 2010. Yeah. Latisse said that Maitree seemed distressed and agitated in the video footage. And she knew it was edited because one moment she's standing there holding a paper. And then the next minute, the footage shows the paper crumpled on the floor, but doesn't show how that came to be. The LASD has also never acknowledged why it was edited. There's another huge point in the footage her family discovered, and authorities won't answer their questions about this detail either. Two minutes after Maitrice is seen leaving the station lobby... An unidentified deputy is seen also leaving the lobby through a side door. The department has never given his name and never volunteered this information on their own. It only came to light when Maitrice's family finally saw the footage. Maitrice's dad, Michael Richardson, said, quote, The guy leaves the building right after my daughter and they don't tell us anything about him. He could have abducted her, offered her a ride to the impound lot, left her for dead and came back for her. Maybe he didn't see her. The point is, why have they been hiding him? It's their job to get off their donut-eaten asses and find the truth. <laughs> I got the chills and then that random thing yeah. laugh. <laughs> I wasn't prepared. So on the topic of this mystery deputy, Mike Kessler wrote, quote, A confidential source provided me the name of the deputy in the video, who'd been transferred less than six months after Maitrice's family viewed the footage. When I called the deputy, he told me, Unfortunately for you, dude, I wasn't there and hung up. On our next call, he insisted that he couldn't remember if he'd been at the station the night Maitrice was arrested and then went on to imply that he had been on site. The night this nonsense happened, he said, I was one of the guys that kept away from this, minding my own business. I understand not recalling things perfectly. Like if you asked me what I did yesterday, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But having three completely different accounts Mm -hmm. of the situation... Uh One being very mindful to avoid. Uh Uh-huh. That's... What the fuck? Suspicious. Despite these very serious complaints directed at LASD, Internal Affairs did not launch an investigation. Instead, something called a preliminary inquiry was ordered, and it was just sort of more bullshit. The review found no wrongdoing on the part of LASD. It claimed that they verified that the unidentified deputy who was seen leaving moments after Maitrice was released was found to have had an alibi because he was supposedly 
on official business with his partner. And they claimed that because Maitrese was seen a few hours later alone in that guy's yard, that that also proved the deputy couldn't have had done anything to her when she left the station. Apart from the question of the mystery deputy, the review didn't acknowledge any of the suspicious behavior on the part of LASD, nor did it result in an interview with any of the deputies who had contact with her during her arrest, her booking, or her release. So what they reviewed is a mystery. Yeah. Maitrese's mom, Latisse, said in regards to the review, quote, I'm entitled, as is the public, to a more thorough explanation than the one they provided, especially after being told that there was no video. If you consider how many other details they left out, it looks like a whitewash that lets LASD off the hook. Exactly. Yeah. She's brave. A lot of this takes balls. Like, I know you want to be an advocate for your daughter, but to go against, like, a police department or any law enforcement of any sort, like, that's a ballsy woman. And my Trace's parents, they didn't have a very amicable relationship, but they did initially come together in their efforts to find their daughter. Yeah. But the more time went on, the more divided they became. Latisse believed that Maitrese was dead and Michael was still hopeful that she was alive. Some of Maitrese's friends and even Michael himself claimed to have seen Maitrese on a few occasions, but always lost her before reaching her. You know, those things where you think you see someone and then you don't. Yeah. yeah, And then you can't reach her and then she's gone. Yeah. All in all, across a few different states, over 70 alleged sightings of Maitrese were reported to authorities, none of which ever panned out. So about a year prior to Maitrese's disappearance, LASD did a flyover above Malibu and they spotted a marijuana farm in Dark Canyon. They raided it and nobody was there tending to the plants and they uprooted like thousands of plants. Oh, wow. Supposedly, it was run by a Mexican cartel, but given that they didn't make any arrests, I don't know if that's just How they could know that? Yeah. I think it's just what they suspect. So fast forward to August 9th, 2010. This is almost a year since my trees has gone missing. Rangers entered Dark Canyon to conduct a search to verify the eradicated pot farm hadn't been reestablished. And they find a human skull. And then they see the naked, semi-decomposed body of Maitrese Richardson. <gasps> oh my God, I did not see that coming. Really? This is... No. What kind of show do you think this is? Well, no, I mean, like, eventually I just didn't think the pot farm had anything to do with it. Yeah. They call it into LASD. And the deputies from the Lost Hill Sheriff's Station are dispatched to block off the scene and guard the remains until the coroner arrives. Her remains were found less than eight miles from the Lost Hill Sheriff's Station and only two miles from Bill Smith's yard, the last place she was seen alive. So you remember that detail about the deputies not entering the Dark Creek despite seeing that her prince disappeared at the creek bed? Literally where she was. Yeah, had they gone in a little bit further, they may have found her. So did- and, and that was two days after she disappeared. So, like, unless something had already happened to her by then, she very well could have been alive. Absolutely. But it would have been days since she'd eaten or had any water, and she was wearing jeans and a t-shirt, like nothing made to survive cold nights in the mountains. Yeah, and she's disoriented. So she, yeah, so she likely wouldn't have been strong enough to keep going. Um, and, you know, that's... <laughs> But that's then, all speculation on my part. I'm just saying that there was a strong chance that they could have found her that day, whether she was dead or alive. But then my brain starts thinking, did they really stop at that point or did they find something and turn around? That's the thing is we have to just trust their word. That's what, that's but what I'm they're not. saying. No, yeah, no, don't. But like that's, there's there's no one else keeping them accountable. Yeah. They get to they share the what shots. they share. Yeah. 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 They run the narrative. Mike Kessler wrote, Sheriff's personnel conducted a massive January 2010 search. At least 240 people, 60 of them on horseback, plus ATVs, bikes, dogs, and helicopters. When a missing woman is found dead, the body is typically discovered within a 10-mile radius of where she was last seen. But the Sheriff's Department, for reasons it refuses to explain, won't say whether it even searched Dark Canyon. So the day that her remains were found... LASD deputies were responsible for calling in the coroner. Like, that's that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. Authorities are responsible for yeah. calling it in. And because of how isolated the area was, the sheriff's department informed the coroner and his team that they would provide a helicopter ride to the scene for processing. 
Mitrice's remains were found around noon. The rangers informed LASD immediately, but it was 1.30 before any deputies arrived on the scene. State penal code dictates that law enforcement should notify the coroner the moment it learns about human remains. But the coroner reported that the LASD didn't alert them until 2.58 p.m., nearly 90 minutes after the deputy arrived and almost three hours after the Lost Hill station was informed about the body. So when the coroner was alerted, they calculated that there would be at least six hours of daylight remaining, which was more than enough to arrive, process, and remove evidence. But the LASD claimed that their helicopter was unavailable to transport the coroner due to a search for a missing hiker. Even though... While the coroner was waiting at the Lost Hill station, LASD airlifted two LASD detectives to the site. He could have just hitched a ride? Exactly. Oh. Seriously. Or gone back and forth, you know? Yeah. So after keeping the coroner and his team on standby for four hours, the coroner was thinking, like, we're losing daylight, so we're just going to have to come back in the morning. Yeah. And that is when LASD deputies made the unprecedented decision to remove Mitrice's remains and airlift them to the station. Without bagging properly or anything? Just, yes. okay, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Against the direction of Assistant Chief Winter, the, who is the coroner, the coroner's report states, LASD detectives collected the remains and airlifted them back to the Lost Hill Sheriff Station. Despite a state code that says a body shall not be disturbed or moved from the position or place of death, without permission of the coroner or the coroner's appointed deputy. Because that gives people an opportunity to even, yep, in, incorrectly with yes, fingerprints everything. and things like that. It gives everyone opportunity to do literally anything. That means that the LASD had exclusive access to the remains and the scene for six and a half hours before packing it up and moving it without permission, effectively destroying a potential crime scene and any potential evidence. So while LASD supposedly didn't photo document or retrieve soil samples from the scene, the rangers who found the body did take photos. I mean, that's even weirder is that LASD, like they didn't take, you know, everything about their involvement is suspicious. Every, every decision they make is suspicious and it yeah. doesn't make sense. So the photos that the rangers took have never been publicly reviewed, but Mike Kessler had a source who had seen them and said that they only raised more questions. He said Mitrice's naked body was concealed by leaf debris and dirt covered most of it. Hair clung to her skull and more hair was scattered nearby, an earring and bits of something metallic tangled within it. He also said that her right leg, caked in soil and sprouting weeds, sat about two yards upslope from the body atop a mountain of dry vines. The femur of the leg had been removed from the soft tissue as it had been pulled from the top of the thigh. There was nothing but a narrow duct where the bone should have been. Moreover, the leg bore no signs of having been ravaged by animals, which in any case would have normally dragged something that size downhill rather than uphill. Yes. LASD deputies who were on the scene all claim that when they moved her skull, her skeleton lifted up from the ground with it which is insinuating that her skull was attached to her body. But the photos that the rangers took don't corroborate that. They show Mitrice's skull was fully detached from the neck and resting upside down without its mandible on the upper torso. So she's decapitated. We don't know. Okay. A result of gravity, nudging by curious animals, or worse. Like decapitation. Yes. Five of the neck bones weren't even recovered that day. For the entire skeleton to come up out of the ground intact with the pull of the skull was impossible. It's also noted that while there was minor rust on her zippers, her clothes did not reflect having spent the last 11 months in the elements and looked as though they could have been recently washed. Then there's no explanation for why she was partially mummified rather than fully decomposed. Similar to her clothes not seeming to have spent 11 months in the elements, it's bewildering that her body wasn't fully decomposed or eaten by animals, given the specific area and the weather conditions during that time. There's also the issue of her left arm, which was shown to be flexed across her chest as if she was reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. That defies gravity and suggests 
that something like a sheet or a blanket was holding her arm in place during mummification and that there was nothing in nature that would have been able to do that. Mm -mm. An LAPD detective who was interviewed for Mike Kessler's article said, quote, you never move a body without permission. The events of August 9th, he says, sound ass backwards. On the face of it, she was killed. It sounds like someone abducted her, killed her, and then at some point dumped her body. Determining a cause of death proved extremely difficult because LASD continually tried to deny the possibility that a crime was ever committed. They suggested she was bitten by a rattlesnake or even died of anaphylactic shock from poison oak. And when the question of her body being naked came up, they suggested that maybe animals removed her clothes. It's not how it works. They'd be shredded apart. The only articles of clothing found were her jeans, her belt, and her bra, all separate. Her belt was not in her jeans, so it had been removed like, yes. from its, you know. Its loops. And her, she was completely naked, so it's like her bra had been completely Taken unhooked off of her. and removed. Yeah. yeah. So Mike Kessler wrote, Given the location of those items, this would mean that scavengers took off Mitrice's sneakers and socks, unbuckled her belt and slipped it out of its loops, then unzipped and tugged off her jeans before removing her underwear. The animals would have unfastened her two-hook bra and gotten it out from under her. Next, they'd have dragged the detached right leg uphill by the thigh, as opposed to a more mouth-sized foot or ankle, which have been also had bite marks. Mm -hmm and positioned it atop a cluster of vines at some point pulling out the femur. They'd have had to carry the jeans and bra 500 feet and 600 feet respectively down the canyon, drop them in the creek, and carry the belt another 100 feet downstream to hang it on the mess of vines where it was found. And then finally, the creatures would have had to have completely eaten or otherwise disposed of Mitrice's two t-shirts, underwear, socks, and sneakers. So it's fucking crazy. Yeah, it's, it's not happening. It's not happening. No it's breed absolutely of animals doing no. This. <laughs> what fucking animal does that? Yeah, I know, that? seriously. LASD also suggests that maybe rushing water removed her clothing. But again, that's illogical. Water doesn't unhook bras no. and unzip jeans and shit. So after her remains were found, Sheriff Baca said in a press conference, we have no indication of a homicide at this point. I don't believe that the remains are capable of telling us a story. That's all I'm getting I know. I, I'm literally, it's like homicide, homicide, homicide. I know. The total lack of processing and testing was unbelievable. Nothing on her body or the evidence collected was tested, and no one returned to do a more extensive search for evidence at the place that she was found. So months after finding her remains, Latisse, along with some loved ones, geared up in climbing harnesses, ropes, and helmets, and were led by LASD's search and rescue team to the location that Mitrice was found. They were lying out a makeshift memorial site with plastic flowers and photos when they found one of Mitrice's finger bones in the dirt. During the memorial? Oh, no. Her mom. Oh, my God. No. Yeah. So it's That's just like so an indication of how careless they, they were. They never came cracks. back. There were still bones there. Yeah. And, it's unacceptable. You know. So... I want to pause my Teresa's story to share some other information that I learned about the sheriff. And I hope it kind of puts into perspective their efforts with her and in her case. Or lack of efforts? Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> in August of 2006, an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy arrested Mel Gibson for drunk driving on PCH in Malibu. It was this infamous arrest that he made the anti-Semitic and sexist remarks. Mm -hmm. According to TMZ... The arresting officer, officer, officer. <laughs> the arresting officer, Deputy Me, had recorded the entire arrest and proceeded to write an eight-page report that detailed Gibson's remarks and behavior, and the audio um, on his person cooperated the written report. But after discovering all that was said, a lieutenant and a captain read over the report, and then after consulting with sheriff's headquarters, they instructed Deputy Me to alter the details. They called the report inflammatory and allegedly said, quote, for a drunk driving arrest, is this really worth all that? Eight pages? No, his remarks. Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> I'm like, I, never mind. <laughs> so Deputy Me was instructed to write a new report that didn't include Mel's offensive remarks. <laughs> According to Mike Kessler, 
The sheriff's deputies drove Mel Gibson back to his car after he sobered up and posted bail. This is also the same sheriff's department who is currently being sued by Kobe Bryant's widow, Vanessa. Not long after the January 26th helicopter crash in Calabasas that killed Kobe, his 13-year-old daughter Gianna, and seven other passengers, a bartender witnessed an off-duty L.A. County Sheriff's trainee deputy show a companion photos allegedly taken of the bodies at the crash site. After witnessing this exchange, Oh, that's sick. The bartender filed a written complaint to the police, which resulted in the discovery that at least eight deputies had taken photos of the crash site and the passengers' remains on their personal cell phones the day of the crash. Sickening. In addition to the department, Vanessa is also suing Sheriff Villanova specifically because he allegedly knew that the deputies had taken the pictures, but rather than launch an investigation, he allegedly just told his deputies to delete the photos to avoid punishment. The helicopter crash occurred in Calabasas very early in the morning, and almost as soon as Vanessa was informed, she left her home in Newport Beach and made the over-hour-long drive to the sheriff's station. She went there specifically to speak to the sheriff in person and verify that the department was securing the crash site as much as possible because she feared that paparazzi and members of the public might take photos. Mm -hmm. This woman lost her husband and her child an hour after last seeing them and left her surviving children at home to make this visit in person because that is how concerned she was about photos being taken of the crash. So can you imagine how sickening it was for her to learn that she was afraid of paparazzi photos being taken? But it was the very people responding to this crash scene who were responsible for protecting it, who took pictures and then disgustingly showed them off at a bar. Like, it, it's, it's like the, bragging. It's the most... It's the sickest, most repulsive shit I've ever heard. It's awful. In light of this lawsuit, the sheriff's department told USA Today Sports, quote, shortly following this tragic crash, Sheriff Villanova sponsored legislation, which now makes it a crime for public safety personnel to take and share non-official pictures of this nature. It's just like, okay, well, too little, too fucking late. So as I was researching LASD's role in her case, In my Teresa's case, I mean, I also came across the story of the Malibu Creek State Park shootings, and I went down a rabbit hole with that story. I had never heard of this Mm -hmm. before, and that's sort of the point. From 2016 to 2018, several people reported being shot at while camping or driving through Malibu Creek State Park. All shootings happened in the middle of the night, and all of them had been reported to authorities. Some of them were sleeping in their cars at their campsites and woke up to find bullet holes in their cars. And others reported simply driving near the park and getting shot at. But it wasn't until June 21st, 2018, when an Irvine man named Tristan Baudet was murdered in his sleep while camping in Malibu Creek State Park that the public heard of any of these reports. He had been camping there with his two young daughters, aged two and four. Oh my God. And at 4.44 a.m., While Tristan and his daughter slept, a bullet shot through the tent walls and into his head, killing him instantly. His wife filed a $90 million lawsuit against various organizations, um, Mm -hmm. and obviously LASD being one of them. It wasn't until Tristan's murder that the public started connecting dots and figured out that there had been regular shootings targeting people in and around that state park. So his widow was suing because she says if only authorities had made a public safety announcement, her husband would still be alive. I've never heard of this. Yep. I would have gone there. Yep. You know? Yeah. So obviously, you know, I added a lot of other situations involving them as a reference, you know, that this, it's not, this is not an isolated situation. LASD's. They're just not doing their job in general. Yeah. But it was specifically the Mel Gibson one that really struck me. A white, wealthy Male celebrity has the audacity to drive drunk and make anti-Semitic and sexist remarks, and the LASD tries to protect him. Then, they go above and beyond by driving him to his car the next day. Mm -hmm. Whereas Maitrese, on the other hand, a black woman who was not a celebrity, who was experiencing an obvious mental health crisis, who wasn't violent, offensive, or inappropriate, and didn't exhibit any dangers to any dangers to her or others. Mm-hmm. She was arrested, 
and then inexplicably released in the middle of the night in the cold Malibu mountains with no phone, no purse, no way of safely getting anywhere. And they, they all knew that. They knew that she didn't have anything on her. And they let her go after the deputies specifically told Mitrice's mom that they would not release her that night. Had she known they were going to release her, of course she would have gone to pick her up. That's why she specifically asked, are you going to release her tonight? Yeah. So Lee Baca was the sitting sheriff of Los Angeles County from 1998 to 2014. So he was the sheriff like during this Mitrice situation. Mm -hmm. This next part, I'm reading off his Wikipedia page directly. In 2012, the ACLU filed a suit to prevent Sheriff Baca from continuing in his position. They compiled an extremely thorough report that said in part, the longstanding and pervasive culture of deputy hyperviolence in Los Angeles County jails, a culture apparently condoned at the highest levels, cries out for swift and thorough investigation and intervention by the federal government. The abuse includes rape of inmates by deputy sheriffs. Um, okay. Are we going to talk more about that? I mean, that literally every aspect of this story, like you can, we can make a whole episode out of just this alone, the corruption in this. And it's crazy. So to, you know, and we can't, so to make a long story short, Lee Baca and actually many other lower ranking officers pled guilty to various things relating to this federal investigation of corruption and brutality within the department. So after Baca's resignation, Dr. Rhonda Hampton, a clinical psychologist and family friend of the Richardsons, submitted a 500-page document to the then-California Attorney General Kamala Harris. She was requesting that the Attorney General's office conduct an official investigation into Mitrice's death and the actions of the LASD the night of her death, their actions in the aftermath of her disappearance, and then their actions on the day that Mitrice's remains were found. Dr. Hampton complained, that it took a short six weeks to receive a letter back from the AG's office, claiming that the 500-page document was carefully evaluated but didn't actually warrant a formal investigation. And it just seemed too short a time to truly evaluate all of the potential evidence. So not long after that, Mitrice's father, Michael, wrote the AG another letter requesting that she reconsider opening an investigation. Two months after this, Kamala Harris announced that she would take another look at the case, but Michael and Dr. Hampton believed her agreement was solely based off of her upcoming run for Senate. Mm. She had received a lot of backlash for not looking into Mitrice's case initially, and people suspected it was due to her endorsement of the then-sheriff Jim McDonnell, and it was that sheriff who covered up all those state park shootings. Yeah. In an article written by Dr. Hampton, she said, quote, Mr. Richardson and I had no real confidence that there would be an earnest investigation and joked that most likely she would drag out the quote investigation until after her run for senator was over and then again announced that there was no wrongdoing on the part of LASD. On December 16th, 2016, 10 months after she reconsidered the investigation of Mitrice Richardson's case and about six weeks after she won her bid for Senate November 9th, 2016, she cleared the LASD of any wrongdoing and no one was surprised. Did she get the same information that you just gave me? I think so. You know? Probably more. Probably a lot more. By total coincidence, on an inauguration day this year, I was on my couch all day watching all the coverage, of course, and I was writing the story and I specifically got to the Kamala Harris part as I watched her get sworn in. And it was... It was a total, total coincidence. coincidence. Yes. And so while that was, you know, an amazing and historic thing to witness, it was also so sad and complicated imagining how Mitrice's loved ones felt watching the same thing. So Mitrice's parents filed separate wrongful death lawsuits against LA County, and they were each awarded 450000 her dad had said something about, like, it wasn't about the money. He really wanted a trial, and mm-hmm. it, that didn't end up happening. They just settled. Mitrice's family, they attempted to get the FBI involved to review the case, but nothing came of it. They even went through the excruciating process of exhuming Mitrice's remains to be examined again. But that was 10 years ago, and there are still no answers. 
In a Los Angeles Times article, it says that on the 10-year anniversary of her disappearance, Mitrice's friends and family held a memorial outside of the Lost Hills Sheriff Station. Sheriff Villanova spoke to the crowd and said, quote, I want to assess the entire case from the beginning with a whole new, fresh set of eyes. And that means we will go back and we're going to canvas and going to walk the entire length of it. And the rest of his comments were drowned out by cheering and applause. And that sounds really positive. Yeah, it right? does. Yeah. It's not. But it's not. No, yeah. it's not. Why would it be? No. It turns out when he was asked to clarify details on what her loved ones believed to be a brand new investigation into her death, Sheriff Villanova explained that what he actually meant was the fresh eyes were actually just him rereading the case files on the department's previous investigation, but that there was no new investigation happening. So <laughs> well, he's referring to himself as the fresh eyes, even though he was present. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> he doesn't know the meaning. Yeah. Or so, he's a liar. <laughs> yeah. So for anyone who took my dumb advice about making Mike Kessler's name into a drinking game, if you're still with us, this is going to be your last shot. So pick yourself up off the floor. Mike Kessler wrote, Latisse is haunted by guilt for not rushing to the Lost Hill Station once she learned of Mitrice's arrest. She suffers from debilitating anxiety and depression. Early in the ordeal, Latisse stated publicly that she thought deputies were involved in Mitrice's disappearance. Though she's convinced her daughter was murdered, that's about the only thing she's certain of anymore. Mitrice is not a hiker, she says, speaking of her daughter in the present tense, something she does often. My daughter is a city girl. She did not wander into that canyon. I believe she was suffering from mental illness and somebody took advantage of that. I believe she was possibly raped, definitely killed, and eventually dumped. Just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, she says. Sheriffs and the coroner made more mistakes that only complicate things. The LA County Sheriff's Department has supposedly changed some of its policies in light of Mitrice's death. It doesn't wait now to take missing persons reports for adults, and it makes sure that people have their cell phones and personal property returned before they are released from jail. So, I mean, while it's comforting to know that at least someone else isn't going to be just like released out into the middle of the night with nothing, that's really too little a change to be boasting about. Mm -hmm. Someone out there is responsible for her death, but no one has ever been held accountable. And that is the unbelievable unsolved story of Mitrice Richardson's death. That was, I think, honestly, I feel like I had the most like visceral reaction out of all the things that we've covered. That's how I felt that one. the yeah. whole time I was writing it. It was like, I was so emotionally invested. Like I would be writing it and like my heart was, my blood pressure was through the roof. Yeah. My heart was like pounding. My palms were sweating. I I've, have been so angry through this entire, you know, well, research think, of it it's just it's insane well I think a lot of it comes down to too that if like you are someone that is like a true crime fanatic like we are you in the back of your head rely so heavily on people to protect you when they have that particular job law, law I, enforcement whether you're interested or not like we all expect to be protected by them yeah that's like that's a safety zone and so to think that a mother thought that she was maybe in the safest place she was told she was she in was, the safest she, place. She yeah. was specifically, she specifically asked, she was specifically reassured she would be there all night. She could come in the morning and pick yeah. her up. And then they just released her. Just beyond unsettling what you can't rely on. Yeah. And I can't even dive into like the levels of corruption on so many different playing fields. Yeah. It's deeply unsettling. Extremely. And so they're saying that because I made that comment, I asked if she was schizophrenic and obviously I don't know enough about mental illness. I shouldn't even have thrown that out there, but there's, they, they meaning people that I've looked at this case or they, they're thinking that she had like some sort of bipolar episode or. Yeah. That's what the LAPD after they got involved in it, they determined that she had been sleep deprived for several days prior to her disappearance or prior to her, prior to her situation at, um, the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And then um, based off the things, you know, that her mom was saying and the, the, the kind of erratic stuff that she was saying to her friends and her mom leading up to it, it something was happening. Absolutely. And she was 24. And I mean, I didn't research this specifically for the story. So 
I'm probably not going to say it very eloquently, but I know that lots of people go through changes in their early 20s as yeah. their brains are, you know, still developing and stuff. I mean, who knows? I just like, I don't want to like speculate. I don't mean to speculate, but it's a common time it to just find out. It, it was just a mental health crisis. Something was going on with her mentally, you know, and she didn't need to be fucking arrested. She no. showed all the signs that she needed to go to the hospital. Absolutely. That was it. Authorities have mm -hmm. the ability to get someone like that to where they need to be. It's not yeah. like all they can do is arrest or walk away. So and they should be able to determine whether or not someone is harmful to the public as well. And she clearly was not. I mean, she's going up and having conversations with people. Yeah. She's being very friendly. Yeah. She might be speaking gibberish, but that's like you said, she should be going to a hospital and yeah, they're seeing all types of people. It's, Oh, you gave me a lot to think about. Thank you. I know. It was like. It was really good, though. You did was, a lot of great research. It's really just Mike Kessler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, Mike. I, thank you, Mike. Um, yeah, I basically just read from his. I did so much research, and there's a lot of other sources, but he did such a thorough report on this. Probably the most thorough out of everything that I read, and mm -hmm. so it was really all based off of his article. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that was really, really good. Thanks. I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks. Are you going to miss me? Yeah, I'm going to miss you so much. Oh, okay. Maybe we should text or something. Okay, I'll text you. <laughs> the stupid face we just did to each know. other. I was like, Ooh. okay. Ooh. Oh, bashful. Yeah. Well, good job, Ash. Thanks. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Okay. Love you. Well, I mean, you'll see me in a couple of weeks. Our episodes are still coming out like normal. <laughs> yeah, well, what's important is what I'm seeing. Yes, I guess so. <laughs> Okay, well, love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina. We'll see you next week.